right, all right, all right. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. How's everyone doing? I hope you are all very well. I hope you guys had a great Valentine's Day. Um, however you guys did that, self-care, Galentines, Valentines, Friendentines, whatever the Hellentines. It's the first day of March. Super stoked. I love it. Can you guys believe we're already three months into the year? Wow. Holy shit. Pardon me. Already off the rip cursing. Bad girl. Anywho, certainly hasn't felt like spring, but I've had some nice days here and there in anywhere USA to remind me that spring is on its way, which is super exciting for me because I'm over the freezing, which, you know, the freezing temperatures that have spread over the past couple of weeks across the country, I absolutely hope that everyone has been staying warm and cozy as possible, um, safe off these roads. Oh my goodness. Anywho, I also would like to thank you all for continuing to spread the word about what had happened to True Crime Podcast. Your support and listenership means the world to me. With that being said, thank you, thank you, thank you. You're far too kind. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is your shout out time. Washington, D.C., Hampton, Manassas, Richmond, Alexandria, and Arlington, Virginia. Hello. Jacksonville, Orlando, Miami, St. Petersburg, and Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Hey, girl, hey. Phoenix, Queen Creek, Gilbert, Tucson, Apache, Apache Junction, Arizona. Hi. Let's see here. Memphis, Knoxville, Nashville, Murfreesboro, and Bristol, Tennessee. What's poppin'? Indianapolis, Jasper, Columbus, Muncie, and Fort Wayne, Indiana. Thank you again for the listens. Salt Lake City, Ephraim, Park City, Riverton, and Orem, Utah. How are you? Oslo, Norway, India, Finland, Argentina, Dubai, United Arab Emirates. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your likes, shares, and subscribes. Don't forget to join the What Had Happened Facebook group and follow all of the social media accounts that can be found in the description box along with ways to contact me. So, you know, hey, you could easily send me an email if there's a crime that you would like to hear discussed on the show or want to say, hey, long time listener, first time emailer, just keep it clean, people. <sighs> Please. And thank you. Anywho. Again, per the usual, all of that information as well as my references can be found below in the description box, per the usual. For our last episode, I discussed serial abductor, rapist, and killer couple Gerald and Charlene Gallego, who murdered 10 people between 1978 and 1980 in California and Nevada. Today, I will be discussing two serial rapist killers Ronald Adrian Gray of North Carolina and Reynaldo Javier Riviera who of South Carolina Ronald Gray was born August 14, 1965 in Cochrane, Georgia but was raised in Miami's public housing project Liberty City Growing up 
Ronald lived with his mother, sister, and stepfather, who was quite abusive to Ronald. After graduating from high school, Ronald enlisted in the United States Army in 1983-84-ish. Ronald was assigned to Target Acquisition Battery, the 139th Field Artillery Battalion in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, as a cook. All was quiet on the Western Front, so to speak, until 1986, when 20-year-old Ronald began his terrorizing spree. Dare I say rampage. And here we go. Oh, dumpster juice alert. Linda Jean Coates was a 24-year-old college student at Campbell University enrolled in the school's ROTC program with the U.S. Army. She was days away from receiving her commission of second lieutenant. On April 29, 1986, Linda's 24th birthday, her birthday, her body was discovered inside her trailer in Fayetteville. Linda had been raped and sustained a gunshot wound to the head. Days after the horrific discovery of Linda Coates' body in Fayetteville on May 3, 1986, soldiers in Fort Bragg stumbled upon the body of 23-year-old Teresa Utley. Is it Utley or Utley? Utley. U-T-L-E-Y. A sex worker in Fayetteville. Again, chef don't judge. Teresa had been abducted, stripped nude, beaten, raped, and finally stabbed to death. Six months following the gruesome murder of Teresa Utley, I believe it might, it feels, okay, Utley feels good in my heart, Utley, and I apologize if it's Utley, but it feels like Utley. November 16th, 1986, two women in Fayetteville were abducted and raped by an assailant they would describe as a black male brandishing a gun and threatening their lives. While both women didn't report their abductions and rapes to police, one of the victims confided in her boyfriend what had happened, and after surveilling the area on November 26th, she was able to point out Ronald Gray to her boyfriend as her assailant. Four days prior to the victim spotting Ronald on November 22nd, another young woman from the Fayetteville area had been abducted, raped, and stabbed from head to sternum. The victim then dumped in suburban neighborhood Bonnie Dune, where he expected her to die from her injuries. However, she survived. The same night, a female soldier on Fort Bragg was also attacked but survived. Ramping up a few days later, another female soldier was raped and stabbed on the military installation. No woman in the Fayetteville and Fort Bragg communities, it would seem, were safe. On December 12, 1986, 18-year-old military spouse Tammy Kelfer Wilson was at her home in Bonnie Dune when Ronald abducted her. Ronald forced Tammy into a nearby wooded area where he raped her before shooting her at point-blank range in the head. A few hours later, Tammy's body was discovered by her husband. On December 15th, two witnesses stated they saw Private Lara Vickery Clay with Ronald Gray at a local Kmart when the two left together. Ronald raped, sodomized, and badly beat Lara before setting fire to her trailer and driving her car through a wooded area on Fort Bragg where he would shoot her numerous times, 
sustaining shot she sustained shots in the neck forehead chest and the back of the head with a 22 caliber pistol after shooting her repeatedly ronald tossed the stolen gun roughly 60 feet away from the body and fled while lara's car was located on the morning of december 16th parked a block away from her home her body wouldn't be discovered until january 17th 1987 <clears throat> on January 3rd, 1987, another female soldier, 19-year-old Private Mary Ann Lang Namath, was in her room in the barracks. This fucks me up. And if you know, you know. Okay? Like, hold on. Let me take a quick sip of this. If you are a late teen i call it your wonder years between 18 and 20 you're technically an adult but you're limited to the things that you can do okay but if you are in the military hell even if you're a college student and you're like a freshman sophomore or whatever you're like 18 19 20 years old or whatever you guys are in your wonder years okay so i remember personally being in the military and being 19 years old when I came in and in the barracks once I got you know into barracks life I was 20 years old 1920 I remember how you would just you know be in your room and people would come and go and knock on the door peep their head in and stuff and hey what are you doing or hey do you guys do you have any um extra shoe polish or boot polish or whatever your friends would come and go it was very communal and I the I was like a little social butterfly so like if I was bored and I didn't feel like doing whatever I was normally up to doing sometimes I would you know flitter or amongst the barracks and go from like room to room to see what everybody was doing just to be like hey what's up what are you guys up to you know maybe somebody might be playing a video game I hadn't played yet or somebody was you know doing a hobby or something that like would interest me or watching something I hadn't seen yet but it doesn't matter I felt this in my spirit so Marianne Lang Namath was in her room in the barracks when specialist Ronald Gray popped his head into her doorway under the guise of inviting her to a party that he didn't want posted on the barracks notification board once Ronald was inside Marianne's room, he locked the door behind him and sprang on her, holding a knife to her throat, asking her for her field gear. Ugh. After tying her hands behind her back, Ronald then removed Marianne's clothes and raped her. After raping her, he stabbed her repeatedly in the neck and sides of her body, threatening to return and kill her if she screamed. While Marianne suffered a lacerated trachea and collapsed lung, she survived the brutal attack. On January 6th, 23-year-old Fayetteville cab driver Kimberly Ruggles would become Ronald's final victim. On that day, Kimberly was dispatched to pick up Ron at his barracks. When Ron got into the cab, he directed Kimberly to drive towards a wooded area on the base. After paying his fare, Ron somehow subdued Kimberly and forced her into the woods. To muffle her screams, he shoved a cloth belt into her mouth that, you know, it would actually match, like, his, I want to say, like, his gi. So, yeah, he, is, is that what it's called? A gi? For karate? 
I don't know. I just tried to consult someone in the room, but, you know, noise-canceling headphones. Oh, well. You know what I'm talking about. Um, if I said it wrong, I'm sorry. Anywho, it was a soft, it was a soft cloth belt. He had shoved it in her mouth, gagging Kimberly. Ron then raped, sodomized, and beat and stabbed her seven times. After slicing Kimberly's throat, Ron robbed her and ran. Hours later, her cab and then body were discovered by MPs who were doing their normal patrol of the base when they saw that, you know, the cab was kind of like off on the cut where it didn't need to be. Ronald had been a frenzied attacker, rapist, and killer. He left fingerprints and didn't conceal his identity. Following the horrific slaying of Kimberly Ruggles, two surviving witnesses reported their attacks and Ronald was identified by Mary Ann Nemeth. It would take six months of investigating. Okay, because you know this is the military, right? So, like, there's layers to this. You can't just... The, the, the military installation in and of itself is like a, a, a municipality in and of itself similar to um for instance uh tribal the tribal police how they have they're a different municipality within the reservations um and then they abide by different rules and guidelines and stuff and they have to ask for outside help that was a sidebar sorry uh so of course it would take six months of investigating before specialist Ronald Gray would be formally indicted by civilian authorities on 23 felony charges, including two counts of first-degree murder for the murders of Linda Coates and Tammy Wilson, five counts of first-degree rape and first-degree sex offense, four counts of first-degree kidnapping, two counts each of first-degree burglary and armed robbery, plus one count each of second-degree arson, attempted first-degree rape, and assault with a deadly weapon with intent to kill. With his bond set at $420,000, it was ensured Ronald wouldn't be able to make it and would be held in custody. On August 7th, he was charged with two counts of murder for the murders of Private Laura Vickery Clay and Kimberly Ruggles, and two counts of attempted murder on a military installation. On November 5th, 1987, Ronald pleaded guilty to all charges in Fayetteville, where he received three consecutive terms of life imprisonment. On April 12, 1988, at his court-martial hearing, Ronald was convicted of all his remaining crimes and sentenced to death for the crimes he committed aboard the military base. Like, aboard, I'm sorry, aboard the military base. Additionally, at the court-martial, Ronald was given a dishonorable discharge, total forfeiture of all pay and allowances, and reduction to the rank of E-1 private. On July 29, 1988, the commanding general of the 82nd Airborne Division approved the 22-year-old's sentence. Ronald, who was remanded to the U.S. Disciplinary Barracks at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, was placed on death row and remained there. 
by government law, a member of the U.S. Armed Forces cannot be executed until the president approves the death sentence. President George W. Bush approved the execution on July 28, 2008, making Ronald the first service member to be sentenced to death since 1957, when Private John Arthur Bennett was convicted of rape and attempted murder of an 11-year-old Austrian girl. The following month, Army Secretary Pete Guerin set Ronald's execution date for December 10, 2008, by way of lethal injection at the Federal Correctional Facility in Terre Haute, Indiana. On the heels of execution, Ronald was granted a stay of execution on November 26, 2008, by a federal judge to allow time for further appeals. At present date, he still hasn't been executed. Now, let's move a little farther south, down to South Carolina, by way of Madrid, Spain. Ronaldo Javier Rivera was born on September 13, 1963. The son of a doctor, uh, the son of Dr. and Mrs. Rivera, the family moved to Puerto Rico in 1970 when Ronaldo was seven years old. At the age of 19, Ronaldo enlisted in the United States Navy, where he went to basic training in Orlando, Florida, and then was stationed in San Diego, California. After arriving in San Diego, Ronaldo spent the next three years at sea and, pardon me, pardon me, but holy fucking shit, that sounds like that could mess with your mental if, I mean, I understand you, like, stop off at ports and stuff, but, like, I'm not gonna lie, I was in the air wing, but, um, I wasn't on a carrier, so, like, my experience was the HSV, which is a high-speed vessel, and that sucked for me personally because everybody on the boat had, like, seasickness and motion sickness and all that other nastiness. So I just couldn't imagine being stuck on the boat for, like, three years, like, for the entire time you were, you spend that at sea. Oh, sorry. Anchors away, guys. From 1986 to 1991, Reynaldo was in Washington, D.C., working for the Joint Chief of Staff. Reynaldo received his degree in office administration at the University of South Carolina. Still an active-duty sailor, Reynaldo moved around Graniteville, Columbia, Fayetteville, North Carolina, before North Augusta, where he met and married Tammy Lisa Bennett while still attending USC. Marrying on Valentine's Day, 1993, the couple would go on to have two children together. The Riveras would be moved around to Pensacola, Florida, and then Corpus Christi, Texas. September 1995, Reynaldo was discharged from the U.S. Navy. Following Reynaldo's discharge, the Rivera family moved back to Aiken County, South Carolina. In 1998, Reynaldo began working for the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company in Aiken as a tire inspector. And this is where your next dumpster juice alert comes in.
extra juice alert. On July 17, 1999, 17-year-old Melissa Faye Dingus of Graniteville was abducted. While deputies reported two separate instances where Melissa was seen entering two different vehicles with a man whose description would later match Ronaldo. The skeletal remains of Melissa were discovered in the woods near Harlem, Georgia on October 13, 2000. Melissa's remains were approximately seven miles east of the Savannah River. Her remains were only located after Rinaldo confessed and instructed them to her location. On December 4th, 1999, Rinaldo pulled into the Winn-Dixie parking lot in North Augusta when he saw 17-year-old Tiffany Sharice Wilson and her two-month-old daughter, Caitlin. He told the teen he had a modeling agency and would love to discuss signing her and photographing her. Rinaldo asked her to get into his car and away they, the three went. The interaction witnessed by others in the parking lot would say that as quickly as the mid-80s white Ford stopped Tiffany in the parking lot, the car was zipping out of the parking lot. Smooth criminal, right? The following day, after failing to return home with Caitlin from Winn-Dixie, her car was found still parked in the North Augusta grocery store parking lot. On December 7th, two-month-old Caitlin was found abandoned in her infant car seat carrier at the Georgia Welcome Center. Authorities immediately suspected an abduction was involved with this baby sitting there at this, you know, welcome center. And thank goodness nothing had happened to Caitlin. Like she, you know, he didn't harm her, you know, and you know, she didn't accidentally get hit by a drunk driver, whatever. Thank goodness nothing happened to Caitlin. Okay. But you know, authorities immediately suspected an abduction and searched along highways, I 20 and 25, while searching the area, police located articles of clothing they believed were associated with the newborn, like the newborn's mother, discovered at the Welcome Center. Um, so on December 30th, 1999, two deer hunters were walking through dense woods when they stumbled upon the remains of Tiffany, who was positively identified by her fingerprints. The coroner reported that Tiffany's hands were bound and restrained behind her back. Tiffany's autopsy would also show that she had been raped, sodomized, and finally her cause of death would be the stab wound to her back. On June 19, 2000, Rinaldo pulled into the parking lot of an Augusta huddle house waiting for the perfect girl to spring his trap on. 18-year-old Tabitha Lee Bosdell of Augusta had arrived at the Huddle House to apply for a part-time job when Reynaldo spotted her. While Tabitha's main job was in telemarketing, she wanted or needed another job, so why not go to the local Huddle House? She was dropped off at the restaurant by a family member never to be seen again. Sidebar, for those of you who, don't, who aren't familiar with the Huddle House, it is... The pancake version of the Waffle House. The setup is similar. Greasy spoon. Amazing shit when you're, like, coming out of the club. Definitely a place I've soaked up my night of clubbing. Um, Along with the Waffle House. Denny's, diners, food trucks. And back to the script. 
As he had done with Melissa and Teresa, Ronaldo pulled up alongside the 18-year-old and asked if she was interested in becoming a model. Would she like to come down to his agency office and take some headshots? As quickly as whatever words Reynaldo actually used to lure his victims into their rapes and deaths, witnesses said that Tabitha was gone. On October 16, 2000, Reynaldo was charged with Tabitha's murder when her skeletal remains were positively identified. He again, you know, told him where to find her. And, ugh. September 5th, 2000, U.S. Army Sergeant Marnie Marie Glista's husband, who was in Kuwait, couldn't get in touch with his wife over the phone. He called her office and was informed that she had failed to report for duty. Marnie's commanding officer and another officer went to the sergeant's home. When they arrived, they saw that Marnie's husband's vehicle was in the driveway. The windows were rolled down. The groceries were in the front seat, along with, later on it would be found, a $20 bill, Marnie's cell phone, and a receipt for her groceries, which were time-stamped at 11.12 a.m. September 4th. When the, you know army officers approached the front door they noted that the lights and ceiling fans were on inside the galista home but they were unable to get an answer to the numerous knocks and doorbell rings whatever attempts they made to try to you know make contact unable to get a response from within the home the officers called police who entered the home when they walked into the master bedroom of the home police found marnie clinging to life at the foot of the bed marnie lay in the prone position nude with an ex with the exception of her bra which had been unfastened her wrists were neatly bound with medical tape with approximately a one inch gap between each between her hands marnie lay gurgling marnie had suffered multiple stab wounds sodomy and rape for five days she struggled before succumbing to you know, the irrevocable damage done to her by Reynaldo. On October 10th, 2000, Reynaldo returned to the North Augusta Huddle House parking lot. That's where he abducted Tabitha Bodstell from. On the morning, on that morning, Reynaldo approached 18-year-old, I'm sorry, not, yes, that was a good reference. On the morning, on that morning, Reynaldo approached 18-year-old Chrissy Lee Barton. While Chrissy Lee was at a stop sign, Reynaldo approached her driver's side window asking her for directions. He was like, hey girl, can you tell me how to get to Sesame Street? And motorists were backed up behind Chrissy Lee and they were beginning to honk their horns because they were getting irritated. So Reynaldo suggested that they pull into the Huddle House parking lot because he really needed to get to Sesame Street. Okay, Plaza Sesamo actually. And that's what threw her off because she only knew how to get to Sesame Street. She didn't know how to get to Plaza Sesamo. So Ronaldo gets her over there into the Huddle House parking lot. Ronaldo tells Chrissy Lee that he was the owner of an escort service and a modeling agency. Ronaldo hit all of the bullet points quickly, but failed to provide proof of these claims because Chrissy Lee is 
18 years old in 2000 and she's at least smart enough to say, hey, do you have a business card? Do you have any headshots of all of these models that you say that you represent or all of the escorts that work for you? Do you have data to support what you're saying? So, Ronaldo, you know, is trying to tell her all the sweet things and get her in and out of the Huddle House parking lot, you know, expeditiously. After telling Ronaldo that she wouldn't go to his quote-unquote agency to take her photos or what have you, she says to him in a last-ditch attempt to kind of get away from him that he could come to her stepfather's apartment. So Chrissy Lee attempts to lose Ronaldo in traffic by switching lanes, but Ronaldo is a shark in water and there's blood. You know what I mean? This is that these are all the scenes in Jaws, essentially. What you know. Orca. That's a banger. He manages to keep on her heels, pulling in beside her when she pulls up in front of the apartment. Ronaldo follows right behind Chrissy Lee into the apartment. While Chrissy Lee was in the bathroom, most likely trying to figure out how she was going to get Ronaldo out of her home. She's a Southern girl. She's polite, but she's no nonsense. And, you know, she's at least got some streets. She's got some wit about her. But this man has managed to worm his way past every excuse that she has given him and and now he's in her home so I know she was in that bathroom like trying to figure out how to politely get this man out of that damn apartment I know it in my heart you know oh so whilst she was in the bathroom Ronaldo slipped into the kitchen and pocketed a kitchen knife that he was going to you know to attack her with because that's his M.O. When Chrissy Lee returned from the bathroom, Ronaldo attacked her, sodomizing and raping her until she lost consciousness. Ronaldo then strangled Chrissy Lee. Thinking she was dead, he left the apartment to move his car and then he walked back to remove any evidence that would lead back to him. Realizing that he hadn't killed Chrissy Lee, Ronaldo strangled her with a bath towel, towel and then... Uh, transected her jugular vein when he stabbed her in the neck repeatedly. Chrissy Lee again lost consciousness and Ronaldo slipped out of the apartment's back door, but not before he locked the deadbolt on the front door. When Chrissy Lee somehow managed to come to after, you know, Ronaldo was gone, she was weak from her wounds and, you know, the blood that's pumping out of her neck but she manages to get to the phone and dials 911 when police arrive they find that the deadbolt was secured on the front door Chrissy Lee would end up surviving her attack when the description of Chrissy Lee's assailant was made public Ronaldo's co-worker and his sister-in-law notified police that they thought Ronaldo was their person of interest with the heat on Ronaldo went out on the run When Ronaldo was located, like, a day or two later, I feel like he was apprehended, like, around the 13th or so. Um, Ronaldo was discovered, or he was discovered probably around the 11th or 12th. 
He was found in a motel room in South Carolina. And I say around because I don't have a specific date for that. I couldn't find it. When Ronaldo was discovered by police, because he had been discovered in a last ditch attempt to avoid apprehension, he slit, he slit, he slashed his wrists. Okay. But because he did that in a last ditch attempt to be taken in by police as they were coming through the door, they were able to get him immediately rushed to the medical college of Georgia where his wounds were treated and he was placed on suicide watch and then transferred to an isolated jail cell. Upon his apprehension, police charged Reynaldo with the murders of Tiffany Wilson, Tabitha Bots Bosdell and Sergeant Marnie Galista and the attempted murder of Chrissy Lee Barton. On October 18th, 2000, Reynaldo's wife Tammy issued this statement. On October 8th, and this is coming from the Augusta Journal, which published the handwritten letter. Tammy is expressing her faith in God and her grief over the deaths of the four young women her husband raped and murdered. So, this is the letter, quote, we want to express our deepest sympathy for all the victims and their families. We have been praying and continuing to pray for the families and all that are involved. God is the only one that is going to get us through this. In reading about the victims, I prayed to God that the person committing these horrible acts would be apprehended, not knowing it was my own husband. We believe God did not allow him to die in the motel room for at least two reasons. One, so that the unsolved cases could be solved. And two, that total justice can be served. We could never adequately express our grief and tremendous sorrow we feel in our hearts toward you that have gone through the loss of your precious loved ones. My life is shattered, and I just ask that the community have compassion, not so much for me, but for my two small children who are victims also. We've asked God over and over why. How could this have happened? We just do not have the answers and probably never will. Our family, church, close friends, and even people from the community that we have never met have been a comforting support, but above all, God has, has been. We have been cooperating fully with law enforcement and will continue to do so. To the families, again, our deepest sympathy, Tammy Rivera and family. On November 13, 2000, Ronaldo entered not guilty pleas to the capital murder charge and 13 additional charges, which included aggravated, aggravated rape and aggravated sodomy. By the time the trial ended, Ronaldo had told jurors oh, that he suffered from mental illness. Ronaldo said that he should be studied by doctors to figure out why he is the way that he is because he actively fantasized about the murders he committed and warned that if released, he would kill again. Ronaldo then asked for the death penalty and the jurors obliged, charging and then, you know, subsequently, you know, like the judge and stuff. Ronaldo... They charged him with 
the slaying of of Army Sergeant Marnie Galista. Ronaldo Ronaldo currently awaits his death sentence on George's death row at the Georgia Diagnostic and Classification State Prison in Jackson, Georgia. So, what had happened is this. Let's go by the numbers. The first person that we discussed was Ronald Gray. And while there wasn't much background information on him, and I really wasn't able to find much on his family and stuff, because I really... I'm, I'm not too bummed out because that meant that meant that I was able to do what I wanted to do, which was condense North and South Carolina and cover both Carolinas in an episode and by proxy Georgia. But he was abused growing up and there's no telling what type of abuse he sustained at the hands of his stepfather. That is what his mother and his sister testified to. Um, so there's that. But he was obviously a deeply disturbed young man because he went into the military at the age of 19. So essentially out of high school, right? Graduated from high school, enlisted in the army, and... After he got his training and got familiar with Fort Bragg, he began terrorizing. So that tells you that he had had these thoughts for quite some time. And this just happened to be the perfect playground slash killing ground for him he felt like this is the place where i can virtually get away with whatever i want out in town and on base and there's different sets of rules now he had civilians that he attacked as well as service members and it's as and dependents you know spouses he did not discriminate he was frenzied in his attacks at the end he got lazy and just didn't give a fuck you know and just left a basically a pile of evidence pointing at him and sorry not sorry but it's the south in the 80s i don't give a fuck how progressive we are the world we had been at that time i remember north carolina in 1986 and it was not as uh prevalent as it is today for interracial interaction to be you know the norm so for him to be attacking these women who were you know white women all over the place he was doing it out in town he was doing it on base of course they're gonna remember him and he's gonna stand out with the description and they're gonna you know prosecute him to the fullest extent of the law i believe that he really would have gone back to committing more crimes had he not been given the death penalty 
because some people are just that bloodlusty. Now let's move on to Reynaldo. Reynaldo, I mean, do we not see the similarities between the two young men? They both joined the military r roughly around the same age. Reynaldo was 19 years old. He was an immigrant. He spent three years basically isolated on a boat. There's no telling. There, there was some stuff that was referenced about there had been some sex workers who had been murdered throughout the Fayetteville area and there was like a, a large number of them and they it kind of corresponded with times that he would have been in that area in the 80s um alongside you know alongside Ronald but they never could solve the crimes or pin them on Ronaldo or Ronald for that matter but, you know, they did suspect because the M.O. was similar to the crimes that were facilitated by him during his, you know, year-long spree in 1999 and 2000 that he very well potentially could have, you know, caused more, you know, been a, had more numbers to his serial. I think it's also interesting that both men murdered four of their victims. You know, there's there's some parallels. Um, uh, he obviously, I there's obviously mental illness that is in play when you commit these types of crimes. You're not mentally stable. You're not mentally well. You're not mentally sound. So when he told the jury that he suffered from mental illness that was not a lie because the way that his mind worked where he flat out said if you let me out I will kill again so please give you might as well just give me the death penalty you know what I mean um that indicates that he's not well so you know, there he wasn't wrong in saying that doctors needed to study him because we learn, we learn from this. We learn from the data that can be collected from a mind that is as fractured and disturbed as, you know, like his. He is absolutely correct on that. He was not wrong when he told that, when he told that to, the, when he told the jury that. He also was not wrong when he told the jury that he needed the death penalty because he absolutely was going to be a re-offender if ever given the opportunity to go out and be in the world, which tells you that another bloodlusty it's it's and just it just makes you wonder how many people are out there that haven't been caught that continue to act upon those urges whereas these two people were apprehended and when they were apprehended they said flat out hey you better lock me up for everything you got because and throw away the key and then burn me to the ground because if I ever get the chance, I'm going to do that again and again and again. You take that person's word for it. Also, I wanted to point out 
So with the murder of Sergeant Galista, that was, there's so many different layers when you're in the military. Like for instance, if you get a sunburn, that's defacement of government property. So with the murder of Sergeant Galista, it very well could possibly have been considered within that list of charges against Ronaldo uh, somewhere about, uh, what's the term? It's on the tip of my tongue. Um, destruction of government property. And I know that that sounds ugly, but you face higher charges and penalties for destruction of government property, period. Like, um, and I'm not calling Sergeant Galista government property, but she, she worked for the government and there's weird verbiage throughout all of the military branches within their military codes that list weird shit like that. And I honestly wouldn't be surprised if that was something that was there. And so that's part of the reason why, you know, the numbers were so high for him and it was just fuck it, Mando death. Um, I'm glad that both men were apprehended quickly. Oh, it's so disturbing how frenzied how controlled yet you know there the juxtaposition of knowing for instance that they had these areas that they were comfortable with with disposing of the bodies um where they were from where they were comfortable you know targeting people how they were targeting people while they were using different you know, modes of attack, it it would appear that Ronald Gray would just pounce or he would try to angle his way in, for instance, you know, when he attacked Private Nanmith, um in her barracks room uh, or would follow someone from the grocery store. The same with Ronaldo where, and we've seen this before with, Charlene and Gerald Gallego. We saw this with uh, Judith and Alvin Neely. We saw this. We've seen this a few times. Okay, where there's a lure. And so he used the lure of riding in and like, especially at the Huddle House or at a grocery store. And he had a, a particular type. So he liked him pretty and blonde and these girls were all beautiful and they're young and so swooping in front of the huddle house hey girl do you really want to be a waitress making 250 an hour when you could work for you know you could take some headshots you're gorgeous let me take your headshot I have, I have a modeling agency and an escort agency why don't you just hop in my car and we can run over there and my photographer could take your pictures for you and they are bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and, you know, full of Seventeen magazine and stars in their eyes and in sync and shit because it's 1999 and 2000. So bye, bye, bye. They jump in the fucking car 
it's not like hitchhiking, but it's similar. And that is, a, you know, that's a nerve wracker for me. And away they go into, you know, their demise. And I'm not blaming them. That's just how fast he operated. He was in and out. He told he had he couldn't have gotten away with this with older women. Ronaldo couldn't have gotten away with this suavecito Rico Suave shit with an, an older woman. She would have wanted to see proof. She would have, you know what I mean? She would have given him a hard time. So he targeted girls that were straight out of high school. Um, I'm glad that the baby Caitlin ended up fine. Don't know what the outcome of that whole thing was, but I would assume that the family ended up with the baby raising her. Oh, wow. Okay, guys. So that's the ep- that's the episode. Yep, we did that. That was great. I'll be back here within the next week or so with some more lesser-known true crime stories for you. Again, I'm Kimberly, and I want to thank you for giving me another listen. And now, here's some beautiful outro music. <laughs>